Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your once and future Elixir podcast that is now back for a bit after a brief hiatus. My name is Desmond Bowie and I am here with Chris Bell. Hey Desmond, it feels good to be back on the airwaves. Oh my god, it sure does, on the internet waves. On the internet waves indeed. How you been? Well, uh, quarantined for one. Yep. Um, and how have I been? Jeez, man, I don't know. It's been a couple of months. I don't really know where to begin. It's a really to hard question to answer right now as well, right? Like, you know, how are you? You're like, yeah, stuff. <laughs> Same, you know? Yeah, good question. But, uh, you know, it's been fine. Like, summer's still summer. Uh, been out surfing a bit. Uh, progress on the truck. Um, I'm nearing completion of the brake lines. I'm actually going to paint um, the underbody this weekend, which is kind of fun. Um, and have been playing a lot more music recently. Been cool. dusting off... Uh, Dusting off my rig, getting a couple of pedals, a couple, uh, couple more gadgets. You need, it's easy to spend a lot of money on musical equipment. Oh, yeah. Basically, hobbies exist as like a hole for money, right? That's, it's all about the gear. What, whatever hobby you have, it's all about the gear, you know? I, lo- I like that line that hobbies exist as holes into which you throw money. Yes. Yep. That's, That's helped me loosen my wallet for at least one or two purchases here. <laughs> <laughs> so you playing bass again? That, yeah, that's I, um, your jam, right? Mm-hmm. Very yeah, cool. That's, Very that's nice. Have you done any programming while we've been on hiatus? Uh, a little bit. Um, I mean, I've moved away from programming mostly uh, to do more just kind of product management stuff, uh, general managing things. Committed a little bit of code. Yeah, not a lot, I would say. We're going through an audit right now, so there's not a lot of coding there. But um, I guess what you're going to ask me is, have I kept Elixir in? Have you and kept the answer Elixir is, in? Yeah. Uh, sort of. Oh. It's, I've been sort of elixirin'. Nice. That's better mm-hmm. than not elixiring, so I think that's pretty decent. Oh my God, would you kick me off the podcast if I hadn't been elixiring? I might actually have to, yeah. I, I on the other hand, have been elixirin' more than ever, so... Is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm uh, I guess since we've recorded the show last, I uh, have transitioned into a kind of a consulting role, and I'm uh, working on some projects for myself on the side as well. Um, but I'm currently consulting on a couple of different Elixir projects, which is fantastic, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting to be in some great projects with some really good folks. So, and just like, I, I'm doing a lot of code review, some coding, but um, yeah, it's, it feels good. It feels good to be back, you know? You were writing a lot of code at your old job, though. Yeah, it's true. But I like to think that I wasn't you know <laughs> um, it, and i think this feels a bit different because i'm like in this consulting seat versus like being like in a product team you know so uh-huh. i think the the role for me feels a bit more like i'm a bit more away from it and i'm a bit more like here's a ticket get the thing done which is actually quite yeah. a nice change of pace to be honest so yeah, yeah and uh i remember from when i was consulting it's nice to leave the client at the end of the day you close your computer that's it I remember this Desmond life of being that chilled when you were consulting on a few projects together. So, yeah. Those were the days, man. Those, <laughs> those, days. Are, th- those are the days for me, you know? That's, that's the kind of life I'm living right now, and it's, uh, it's great. So, but yeah, things mm-hmm. are good. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be back, and uh, I'm happy that we are doing this show. And do you want to tell us about what's coming up today? I'm glad you asked, Chris. Great setup. <laughs> Today we have a pretty special guest uh, from the Elixir community joining us on the show. We have Sean Stavropoulos, the co-founder and CTO of a company called Boulevard. Welcome, Sean. 
Thank you, Desmond. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the show, Sean. Um, first of all, do you want to kick us off and give us a bit of a high level about um, Boulevard for, for those folks who haven't heard of you before? And I, I love the way you pronounce it, by the way. Your accent brings such a, you know, a prestigiousness to the name Boulevard that it, it doesn't feel as special coming from my mouth. Um, but, you know, thanks again. And Boulevard, we're a business management platform for premium salons and spas. So we, you know, we provide all the technology that a typical service providing business would need, uh, covering the whole gamut from online booking, schedule management, credit card processing, and then helping them pay out their stylists and, and staff uh, through payroll and commission calculation. So you know, really, we become that one-stop shop that they rely on to, to power their entire business. Amazing. And you're and- here in LA with me, right? That is correct. I, I met you recently at uh, MPEX. So yeah, so I think that quite was the a bit first of time a- we, yeah. You, quite a bit of business here in LA for salons and other personal Absolutely. care stuff. You know, right? we, I could not have picked a better location to start Boulevard. You know, in many aspects, this is the epicenter of beauty. Uh, you know, there's, you, you, there's a stone's throw away from some of the most well-known and well-respected salons and spas in the world. Uh, and so, you know, for us to be here in Los Angeles, just organically, uh, it's been an incredible start to what has turned into a really great success. Awesome. And how, cool. how long has the business been going? About five years. So um, myself and my co-founder, Matt Dana, we were executives at a previous startup uh, here in LA as well. It was a company called Fullscreen, one of the largest YouTube media networks out there. Uh, and, and we had worked together for about three years uh, before we decided to start Boulevard. Uh, and that was back in uh, 2015. Cool. So, you know, 2015, you're an Elixir shop. Talk us through what happened there. Like, talk us through the the whole journey from starting Boulevard to getting on Elixir, like what the hell happened there? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I've used a variety of programming languages over the course of my career. And right before Boulevard, I'd say I was most familiar and, and, and used Ruby and Rails, you know, predominantly um, as my you know, most familiar you know, stack. Uh, and, you know, the, the choice for Elixir was... Um, there were a handful of aspects went into it. And I actually first learned about Elixir through a book that I had read, uh, the seven concurrency models in seven weeks or something. And, and I remember Elixir, I think was chapter five and I never even finished the book. I just fell so in love with what Elixir offered that, you know, stopped there, uh, and, and really just started investing more and more time. And it, it felt so natural to me. And so, you know, when, when the time came to start writing the first lines of code for Boulevard, it, it, it felt natural that, you know, if I was going to be investing such a substantial amount of my time and career into building out something that I, I, you know, I'd be working in day in and day out, I value that productivity and I value you know, how delightful is that language to work in, um, you know, every day. Uh, and so for me, I, I found no greater pleasure than to, you know, work in something that I really enjoyed. Yeah, but sure. Like, in 2015, you could barely deploy Elixir apps, though. <laughs> that I mean, is those absolutely the true. <laughs> you know, that, it was not even version 1.0 yet at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still pre-1, uh, and you know, there were lots of rough edges. Uh, but I, I saw not only the community, but you know, where it was headed, and I believed that it would, be, uh, it would turn out well. And so it was just you working on, on the tech in those days? In, that, in the early days, myself and my co-founder, both extremely technical, but he was more on the design and front-end aspect. He made everything look beautiful, and I made right. it all work. 
Um, and so, you know, our, our skill set paired together, uh, I did 100% of all the back end work. Did, was he like, what the hell are you choosing this language for? Or was he, and, and was he like skeptical at any point? He was, um, but you know, there's this certain element of trust uh, that you have to have with your co-founders. And, um, you know, in hindsight, it, it was absolutely a risky decision. And I think there were, there were equally risky decisions on front-end frameworks at the time that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, we could go on for days about. But at the end of the day, I'm really happy with the decision and uh, wouldn't have changed anything. Was he ever like, was he ever like, we're going to go with yellow? And you were like, whoa, man, that's a risky decision. <laughs> like, have you thought about blue? And he's like, no, it's got to be yellow. Yeah, nothing that uh, you know, polarizing. No? Oh, but, well, that's a relief. Yes. We were all, always unanimous around blue. Um, uh, so did, did it start uh, as a REST, like Elixir project? Like, what, can you tell us a bit more about the kind of uh, inception of it and what it first looked like as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember the the very first, so, sort of the founding story of Boulevard was my hair was a disaster one week and my co-founder kept making fun of me and he's like, dude, go get a haircut. You're looking too much like an engineer these days. Uh, and, you know, we had started ranting about how difficult it was to make appointments at salons and spas around Los Angeles. And after hearing the same story over and over again from businesses that the, they wanted to offer a better customer experience, but their technology was limiting. It held them back. And ultimately, after many conversations, we deduced that it was a technology problem. We could build better technology. Uh, and, you know, so, so became Boulevard. But, you know, in those early days, uh, I didn't answer your question. I realize now. That's all good. It's totally fine. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the very first lines of code that we wrote for Boulevard were actually more of a consumer application. And then we realized quickly that there was none of that infrastructure in place that had open APIs and, and exposed the availability of staff members in a way that allowed an ecosystem to thrive. And so we, it was the quickest pivot ever as a company. And we realized early on that if, if we wanted to be that source of truth of you know, when can you book an appointment, then we had to provide the best business management platform out there. And we had to build that flexible um, solution that actually owned the last mile of when is a staff available. And from there, then we can surface it to customers in really convenient ways. And so, you know, early on when we started writing, you know, the backend systems for Boulevard, yeah, it, it was Elixir, um, it was REST APIs, uh, and it was, you know, at that point, not even a single page application, just early mockups were all more, you know, traditional, um, you know, Phoenix views, Elixir views and, uh, and REST APIs. Nice. And that, I'm guessing it's not like that today. So do you want to just like fast forward and tell us, uh, you know, where you've ended up right now? Absolutely. So today, you know, I'm happy to say that we've, you know, fully embraced GraphQL as our APIs. So you know, everything new that we build and, and pretty much everything that's in production today leverages GraphQL as the sole source of truth of how you extract data out of our back end. And um, from there, we you know, database all in Postgres. Actually, we use Amazon Aurora, uh, which has their really nice read replicas. Uh, and then from a mobile application standpoint, you know, React on the front end predominantly uh, and React Native on mobile. Awesome. Um, so how long ago did you make that leap and adopt GraphQL as well? That was actually really early on as well. And, and Absinthe was uh, similarly, you know, pre their, their first release. Uh, and it was well before 
some of the more common patterns like data loader existed in the market. And, and so that, you know, there's a handful of um, areas in our code base where we've reinvented or reimagined things that had not yet uh, become mainstream in the Elixir community and, um, you know, for better or worse. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, one of the, the most difficult uh, and uh, I suppose you know, conversations that happen when, when using GraphQL is the preloading strategies and, mm -hmm. you know, how do you prevent N plus one queries in effective and, um, you know, in delightful ways. Uh, and so for us, you know, data loader is, is now I, what I would consider the most predominant use of batching and, and bulk queries that help you, you know, utilize your database effectively. But um, we actually went a, a different path with embracing Ecto's preload strategy. Uh, but we'll, you know, when you issue a query against the GraphQL API, we'll actually walk through the query that you've constructed, figure out what are all of the preloads that we need in order to fulfill the full request and then preload them all up front before we walk through and resolve the queries. And so we, we you know, rather than waiting and doing more of an asynchronous batching style that data loader would prefer, we fetch all the data up front in, a, in an efficient way and then, you know, pass that through the resolvers. Ah, interesting. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen that strategy employed, but I know people have been talking about it, but that's cool. Um, so you were early on GraphQL as well. <laughs> this just seems like you, you cashed in a lot of chips of the like the new tech, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, there have been so many instances in the past where, you know, I, I'm lucky to say in, in today's API for Boulevard, there's not a single endpoint that is only used in mobile or only used in certain contexts. And, you know, we, we've all been in scenarios where you're just appending query parameters to get, you know, certain context or data back from the API that you, you is not consistent everywhere. Uh, and by, you know, adding that really opinionated and restrictive layer that GraphQL provides to your API, it forces you to, you know, adhere to certain patterns and for better, you know, in my opinion. And, you know, because we have that really structured boundary of how do we get data out of our system, uh, I, I think it's it's forced us to structure the internals of our application in, in a much more cohesive way. And surprisingly, GraphQL has turned out to be my favorite testing boundary. You know, when I, when you look at the the types of tests that we have within Boulevard, the vast majority of the tests that we write, I, I would consider API integration tests that that you know, call GraphQL queries and mutations and verify that the data you get back out of the API is what you'd expect. And that really allows us to move quick on the internals. And if we want to refactor something, you know, we've got a really nice testing boundary that we could adhere to um, through GraphQL. Have you, ha have you had to open up your GraphQL API to third parties as well? Is that something you're Yes. You're doing? In fact, that's what I would consider the big theme of this year for us is that evolution from a robust product, which I would consider us at today, to more of that platform. And where we see the, the future of, of our offering to developers and, and enterprise customers is that ability for them to utilize the platform that we have uh, and, and do creative things with it. And so exposing all of the data we collect on businesses in really structured and methodical ways uh, is extremely important. And so I'd say that we have about 30% of the, you know, our API coverage of things that you can do internal to our platform exposed in a public API manner. Mm. And that's absolutely been an evolution. Uh, and, you know, if we look at all of the different patterns and practices that we, you know, um, 
went through working on our internal GraphQL APIs. Our public GraphQL API is actually a completely different GraphQL schema where we're now polishing all of the practices that we learned about internally uh, and having a much more consistent and unified public exposure of that same data. Mm. So things like you know pagination or querying or filtering of data coming from uh, various sources and you know just being extremely consistent about how you represent data and expose it uh, has been some of the biggest learnings over the course of the years. Mm-hmm. I, that, I mean, that was going to be my question was like, really, are you opening up a GraphQL API? Or are you going to build a REST API on top? And uh, yeah. that, I, th- I think no. this is like one of the interesting things about GraphQL is like the, there's still not uh, you know, you have large companies like your GitHub's, your uh, Shopify's, and some other folks like kind of adopting it, but um, they're still not. It's still not as mainstream as REST, right? Absolutely, and you know, I'd say in particular, some of the still rough edges in my mind, you know, comes with documentation, mm-hmm. and you'll see. You know, GraphQL is inherently self-documenting. It's introspective. You can you could you know look around it, but you know when you look at some of the you know the more common usages of GraphQL in the wild, the Shopify's, the GitHub's, they also have some really nice documentation pages right. that you know provide the walkthroughs and the examples, and and you know you can interact with the GraphQL API in line with the rest of the the documentation, and that that type of experience doesn't yet exist in the market, um, and you know we, we have resulted to having to build some things in house that you know if we were more a traditional swagger uh, rest and you know right. shop we wouldn't have to there's a lot more tooling around that but um absolutely mm. no it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting um turn thinking about leveraging graphql apis now in the, in the wild for like you know third parties to consume so it's, it's from cool an api standpoint that. you know i i absolutely love what some of the additional information that we get from GraphQL, you know, from a backend and API perspective, in particular, if you serve a REST endpoint to, you know, customers, you have no way of knowing, are they actually using certain fields, yeah. right? You, you know, your REST endpoint publishes data regardless of, a, of whether or not a customer wants that particular field. But with, a, with GraphQL, I have certainty because that customer is asking for every particular field that they're using it. And that allows me to have a lot more information around deprecation notices and, you know, who am I contacting because they're still using a deprecated field. And then when they stop requesting that field, I know it's safe to then move on. Uh, and so I, I think it provides a tremendous amount of assurances that, you know, you'd otherwise just have to, you know, hope for the best. Are, are you using the, uh, the Apollo tool to do that? today or are you is this like a speculative maybe do that in the future kind of thing um we're we are using uh, not apollo but you know for our application performance monitoring and you know the analysis of some of the queries we use a different tool called honeycomb again uh-huh. built most of that's uh, the interaction with that um uh, application performance monitoring tool w- was it was uh, structured in-house but um you know at the end of the day having access to every particular field that a customer is asking for is is invaluable yeah no it makes sense cool so uh, yeah let's let's switch gears a bit and talk about um you know growing a team and kind of you've gone through this journey through five years of boulevard um you're a series b company today what has the process of hiring elixir engineers been like and scaling that team um along the way as well yeah you know i we've Again, to your point, we've been in a really fortunate enough position where we have 
incredible investors that have you know put their money behind us and, and and you know want to help encourage us to grow as fast as we can and you know I think a couple of things that are really exciting about the position we're in is that you know we are at, at the you know at, under the hood we're a very healthy business you know the the unit economics make a lot of sense um, we have a couple different revenue streams through credit card processing as well as just the SaaS fees for using our company so you know we we have you know both paths ahead of us of you know growing extremely fast through venture capital but then also building a really sustainable and healthy business and you know, i think that you know because the customers that we serve as a, as as boulevard you know relate to many members of the community like you know our product is used by yeah, all service providers across the country and it, it's 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 really enjoyable and delightful being able to provide our customers with such an incredible product that really does change their life. And when half of our customers came from an on-premise and a desktop solution where they couldn't even check their schedule the night before, they'd have to call the hair salon to figure out when they're, when they're scheduled the next day. Like that, to us, to be able to provide them an experience where now they can see everything from their mobile app, um, it's really gratifying and it's really you know, enjoyable having our uh, incentives so closely aligned with our customers. And, and I think that resonates with people during the interview process. Like in all honesty, going through you know, interview after interview with customers and being able to share how passionate our entire team is with helping our industry modernize um, it, it's been really great. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the mission that we have resonates with people um, in a way that I'm extremely happy for. And then when you dig into more of the specifics on Elixir and, and interviewing, that was, in all honesty, our, some of our earliest concerns when we chose Elixir is, well, how is it going to be to hire people? And, you know, it turns out that I have had more success and enthusiasm in hiring Elixir developers than, than, I, than I ever could have expected. And I found more success finding people who are extremely talented and qualified in Elixir than those in React, um, and, you know, which is fascinating to me. You know, there's far more people that are passionate and wanting to work in the Elixir ecosystem. And I think the type of candidate that, you know, especially because Elixir is still not what I would consider, an, you know, mainstream language, you know, there's very few routes that people are going to go through to really learn and become experts at Elixir. And so that is that that does act as sort of a, you know, a step one filter of people mm. out there. And um, but the, the, the type of people that are interested and excited uh, about Elixir, uh, you know, those are the candidates I want to be talking to. And those are the ones that find us uh, through the grapevine. And so, you know, on the contrary, there's. There's a lot of folks that have varying levels of, um, you know, experience working with some of the other parts of our stack, like the React Natives and other front-end frameworks, and um, and it's been more challenging finding good fits on other parts of our stack than Elixir, hands down. So, um, can you tell us a bit about the team size today and uh, how many engineers yeah. you have specifically? I guess around the Elixir side as well. Yeah. Sure. So our entire company is about 70 people and R&D represents a third of our company. So, you know, between product and engineering, uh, it's about a third of the company. And on the engineering side specifically, we have 22 engineers, uh, which is spread across. Uh, we've got some onboarding and data migration um, focused people all the way through to just API development. Um, and so I'd say uh, 
for feature development and API development and the teams that are actively working in Elixir, there's uh, probably about 12 to 15 of them. Cool. And what do you think has been the, the biggest challenge with you know, scaling and onboarding uh, new folks onto this team so far? You know, one of the things that's been surprising about, you know, I guess maybe not so surprising, but because of Elixir is such a functional language, you know, being able to follow the code path through and see exactly, you know, step by step, it's how are these data transformations happening? You know, I, I think that our code base in particular lends itself really well to diving in and seeing how things work and following it through from one function call to the next. And so, you know, we, everyone on our team, you know, tends to have code pushed to production within their first couple of weeks working at Boulevard. And, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis up front into trying to, to get them into parts of the code base that make sense and that they can make a difference in early on um, to, you know, help jumpstart that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I can't say that there's been too many hiccups or hurdles that new engineers have to go through. You know, we put a, a tremendous amount of effort up front into helping them learn what Boulevard is all about and helping them get situated in a way where they can make real progress fast. So it sounds like you mostly hire people without Elixir experience who are just interested in it, as opposed to people who have some production experience. I'd say it's been about 50-50. You know, mm -hmm. half of the people that have joined our team have worked with it before, uh, either in a more, you know, um, self-serving interest or for per or companies that had used it before but um only yeah about half of our team had never actually used it before but you know had maybe heard good things about it how have you found like on the one hand the language uh is not very large so there tends to just be a couple ways of, of doing things um on the other hand as you pointed out, Elixir developers tend to be senior developers who have seen a bunch of things before. And so they have their background and their experience that they're bringing to the table and probably their biases in the way that they want to write code to avoid whatever they've seen. So in the absence of like, I want to say strong paradigms, like the community is not that old and we don't have a lot of clear ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Um, have you had any trouble having a team gel around a consistent set of stylistic practices or architectural practices? And how do you sort those out in the absence of like, uh, you know, common doctrine? Yeah, uh, great question. And, you know, there, there are a handful of, you know, areas even within our code base that, you know, there's no true convention around that is the obvious go-to. And, you know, I think a great example is just the evolution of, you know, where in your code base are you interacting with your Ecto repositories, you know, in small code bases in your, you know, just in your controllers, often you'd make queries and, um, you know, interact right from the database. Some people, you know, add calls to your repositories right into your schema files. And, you know, the, the separation of data versus the, the repository itself um, is is something that is constantly evolving in the community. And, you know, you've got your Phoenix contexts and you've got, you know, different paths to organize your code uh, as you scale. And, and that's something, again, that, you know, we had to make a decision early on of this is how within Boulevard's code base we're going to structure, you know, our, our Ecto schema files. Nowhere in them do you reference the database at all. 
They're purely data. They're purely, you know, pure functions that manipulate change sets or data that don't interact with the database. And then, you know, we keep the interaction with the repository completely separate. And so, you know, these are things that I would say there aren't clear, you know, you must do it this way or you're going against the grain um, out there. But, you know, within our code base, we do have some strict patterns that we tend to follow uh, and make those clear. Mm-hmm. How well have those scaled over time? Like, and have you found any places where you're like, you know, those patterns that you first leveraged have kind of broken down to date? Yeah, you know, I, I'd say that overall, I love that separation of data and side effects that, you know, the Ecto queries and repository pattern provide. I'd say, you know, some of the challenges tend to come around module naming. You know, it, it's if you want which module takes the name user or ends with, you know, if you want to alias things so you can reference them nicely, you know, is your user struct the, the change set in the data or is it more of the interface module that you can call the create met function on or the get method on? Uh, and, and so I'd say that, you know, some of the naming patterns of modules still are, you know, leave a little bit to be desired uh, and, and haven't, you know, found a pattern yet that we're completely all comfortable with. Um, but it's an evolution for sure. Um, can you tell us a bit about, uh, I guess, on the deployment and the operations side of, of Boulevard? So first of all, how you deploy your software today, where it runs, you mentioned AWS Aurora. Um, and then can you talk a bit about uh, observability and monitoring? You mentioned Honeycomb, but I'd love to hear a bit more about how you're yeah. doing that in production today. I'd say one of the biggest you know, things that I noticed after running Elixir in production for a while was just how minimal the memory usage was compared to what I had seen in the past. And in all honesty, just until very recently, our entire application could run on one Heroku Dino. Uh, and, you know, for us serving, you know, processing tens of millions of dollars of credit cards a month and sending millions of uh, emails and text messages and like, you know, far beyond a toy project, um, still being able to run on one Heroku dyno was just uh, incredibly exciting and, you know, scary at the same time. Um, so, you know, I'd say we started to scale less out of technical necessity and more out of, you know, being responsible and realistic with, you know, what's going to happen at, at scale. And so, you know, today, uh, we, we are, you know, deployed all on AWS. Uh, we're using Fargate um, as, you know, AWS's uh, managed container service. Um, and, you know, the deployment process tends to be, you know, it's been an evolution. I'd say that's, you know, another area where there's a few different ways of serving it. Um, today, we do use Elixir releases. You'll, we'll bundle them up in a Docker file, use Elixir releases, and have, you know, AWS's Fargate sort of manage the rollout of that. Um, and then, you know, when, when those containers start up, we'll run our database migrations, make sure the whole app starts up properly, and then swap over the, the load balancer to the new servers before killing the old ones. Cool. And is it, is it just like a monolithic API today? Do you have microservices as well? Or how does it we, have a, we have a couple um, services. I'd say that for the most part, um, most of our, the surface area of our code base is deployed in a single release mm-hmm. um and you know we the, of a few of the services that we've begun to spun out you know our payments infrastructure 
uh, and then a few of the, the more app style build outs that we've begun recently. But by and large, you know, the, the primary boulevard backend API is, you know, a single monolith with a handful of different apps within it um, that have, you know, close to 200 database tables um, and, you know, about 125,000 lines of Elixir code. So I have a question. Um, you've, you, this is a mature app. Uh, you mentioned tens of millions of credit card transactions a month. I don't know how many text messages, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is a hot running production app, which you also pointed out for a long time ran within the memory footprint of a single Heroku Dino. So presumably it's larger than that today. I'm curious in that journey, have you ever had to tweak anything with the VM? Or is it just like, you know what, out of the box, like, yeah, it's no problem. Yeah, um, out of the box, no problem. In all honesty, there's there's nothing regarding the VM that we've had to tweak. I'd say that um, I have more VM-related issues in the, some of the testing environments and, and the contention between um, you know, all of the asynchronous X unit tests and trying to right. you know, make sure that can pass properly and doesn't get delayed. Uh, but in production, no, I mean, it's, it's really been delightful. I'd say that we are, you know, because we've got, you know, uh, almost 200 database tables and, you know, the, the breadth of query footprint that our app serves is, is fairly large. And actually an issue we ran into a couple of weeks ago that I found, you know, pretty fascinating is uh, generally when you establish a database connection to Postgres, that Postgres connection is long lived. They don't cycle. It'll just stay up as long as your application stays up. And fascinating enough, every query that you issue, um, Postgrex under the hood will parameterize it with the database and prepare that query so that it can issue it you know, in, in a more straightforward manner every subsequent time. Um, but as you know, hundreds and hundreds of different queries across the whole application go through the same database connections, each connection is preparing every combination of query that we, we offer. And so we did have an issue recently where, you know, uh, of e for every database connection that we have, each connection was preparing every single query across the whole application, which in turn was leading to just a very large database memory footprint, keeping all of those prepared queries in memory. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there's a few issues that we've ran into like that just because of the breadth of our application, um, you know, should be reconsidered at some point. Mm -hmm. So then is the answer there just to say, certain connections in the pool will prepare certain statements like i mean it, is that kind of the path forward where like all the user queries go to you know this set of connections like maybe it's a different repo which is actually you know points yeah. to the same database but then uh, that's absolutely an option i think there's a few different ways of solving it but that to your point would would absolutely be one i think Fun. you can turn off the uh the the ability for it to prepare the statements at the repo level or something it's, i remember seeing someone talk about this recently as well yeah. It's kind of an interesting issue. Yeah. Yeah. Then you'd lose a lot of performance. No, it turns to, to out actually this guy's problem. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Sorry, Sean. Yeah. Like, um, no, I, I think I read that. You can in, come solve it for us. <laughs> in the, I think I'm going to reference this blog post in the show notes, but there was a blog that talked about increasing uh, Postgres performance by like 20% out of what's that social network that's built on Elixir? Facebook? Oh, no. Not, Nice, good one. Um, pl Pleroma, I think. Plur Pleroma? No, they're a um, like a marketing. Oh. Oh no, 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 no! I'm thinking of um, Podium. 
Right. Yeah, Pleroma is like they're like an open source social network or something. Exactly. So that they were talking about the performance gains here, and I, I I'm pretty sure Sean it was re- referring to the exact same thing. This is the part where we're like, we have the internet right in front of us, and people are probably like screaming like, you're not right, but um, we'll put the posts in in the show notes so you can read it yourself. But yeah. yeah. So I mean, uh, just to just to go back on that point, so. Uh, could you could you tell us a bit more about the the kind of observability and how you, that's evolved over time as well? Because that's always such a huge topic in in the Elixir community as well. Absolutely, you know, I I'd say that um, until recently. So you know, on Heroku, your options are very limited to you yeah. know, get into the node itself to have any type of clustering. You know, and it, it it works wonderful, and I'd say that um, throughout the development of Boulevard we had structured most of our code and patterns in a way that moving to this clustered approach or you know, opening certain doors in the future would be, would be easy to do that even though we didn't need it yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so now that we could actually start leveraging that stuff, you know, when, in the Heroku world, for instance, when you run a console, if you want to get, hop into one of your running production instances and issue a you know, one-off command, um, you would do that through running a console and that spins up a new node, establishes its own database connections, does all that you know, stuff that in, in a typical production environment you might not want to do. Um, and so you know, through, now that we're on AWS and we have a much more controlled environment, we can actually connect to some of those running nodes in a you know, secure way. Um, so you know, our Docker containers can open up some of the internal ports. Uh, when you're inside of the VPC, you could actually connect right to some of the Elixir nodes and, and debug it live. So you can see the memory footprint, you can see the processes that are running um, and you know, interact with that running node as if it were you know, on your local machine. Um, and so that certainly opens the doors to, you know, with lots of opportunity, but lots of responsibility to you know, manage that appropriately as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that by and large, you know, the, the way that we treat observability at Boulevard is, is through really comprehensive application metrics that we expose. Um, and so, you know, everything from, um, in fact, the recent additions of Elixir and Ecto with the telemetry yeah. has been phenomenal. And yeah. I'm really, really happy to see the community embracing the telemetry approach throughout Absinthe and GraphQL and Ecto and many libraries that publish some deep metrics around queue time of queries. How long is your query waiting to hit the database? Before, you know, how long is it sitting there? And um, you know, by exposing all of these uh, detailed metrics right to Honeycomb in our case allows us to you know best optimize and understand you know what are potentially going to be problems before they become problems. Cool. So are, are you doing tracing as well via Honeycomb? We do. We you... do. We do full tracing through Honeycomb today. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I, I think like that plus telemetry now is just like it. It just gives you like so much power into seeing what's actually happening yeah. inside of your app. It's a great. And what's nice is you know we'll we'll get that full view of. Um, you know, the GraphQL query that came in, what fields right. they asked for, and then all of the different SQL queries that it took to construct all of the data for that, you know, to provide the response to that query. Just out of curiosity, are you using Spandex or Open Census or do you know We're what you're not. Um, neither of those, actually. Um, no. I tried them, had various issues with them at, at some point in the past. I'm sure they've evolved a lot since, you know, we attempted, but um, that part uh, is, I think, built in-house. Cool. Um, I also just wanted to go back to the Heroku thing. When did you migrate? I think that's super interesting. 
um, just within the last couple of months. You know, we had Whoa. moved all okay. of our production and uh, demo and staging environments over, but uh, or sorry, we had we had moved all of our demo and development and staging environments over, but production has, has just been very recent. That's amazing. It's also like, by the way, for everyone listening, it's also like a very viable approach. You don't have to dockerize everything from the get go. You don't have to think about like running a Kubernetes cluster. I think Boulevard's a really great example of that. If you've been, if you've got there at this point and you did it on Heroku, there's nothing wrong with that. It's totally cool. It still serves requests, right? Yeah. And you know, as much as I don't want to have Redis or another, you know, in-memory store uh, in the application. If it can be served by Elixir itself, I, I think there's a pragmatism. And you know, what problems are you really trying to solve today? Totally. And you know, as soon as you introduce that, you know, in-memory complexity where you want your nodes to ha- to be stateful, and when you deploy, you know, it adds extra complexity to make sure that handoff is done properly. And you know, how do you then restart all of your nodes together if you need to for some scenario? And and I think those are just problems that, you know, we didn't want to solve yet. And, and But it's nice to know that we have all of those at our fingertips when the time is right. So have you found, uh, you know, scaling this, this app, have you actually reached for many kind of OTP concepts and constructs and like done some more of that kind of stateful um, actor-based stuff in, in your app so far? Yeah, and, and most of the use of gen servers, again, are, are within the local node itself. Right. You know, a great example is background jobs. Yeah. You know, we, we do have a process whereby, you know, today we do store our background jobs in Redis. And for us, the most important thing is that those background jobs with certainty get executed. Um, and, you know, we don't want to have to worry about, um, you know, for whatever reason, if the node loses connection or gets dropped or restarted, I don't want stateful memory to be lost. And so we do today store all of our background jobs or long running processes in, in a Redis queue like Sidekick, we use XQ. Um, and uh, in that scenario, uh, but we've actually constructed it in a way where if Redis goes offline and there's parts of our application that go to want to insert jobs into the queue, um, they'll just queue up in memory until the connection to Redis can be reestablished and then nice. they'll offload yeah. um, their jobs into Redis. So we've got a few of these layers throughout different parts of our stack that allow for additional failures to happen. Uh, and you know, when you know, things come back to normal, um, those gen servers will offload their data in, in the ways that make sense. I'm guessing that was written because you literally didn't have a Redis connection one day and therefore you ended up there, right? That usually those kind of ops things are like as a result of losing it or something happens. I can't you know? remember if that was a, a proactive or reactive <laughs> change, but yeah. I, I mean, I just know from my experience, I've had more issues with Redis than any other part of my stack in, in mm-hmm. you know, the history of ops. Oh, for real? That's, yeah. that's interesting, yeah. I mean, uh, I've always thought about Redis as being a pretty reliable part of the stack, but it's interesting to hear otherwise. Could be my unique uh, scenario. Who knows? <laughs> um, cool. So, Sean, do you want to tell us a bit about um, you know your you're here today with your Elixir app? Are you planning to stay on Elixir? Do you have any plans to to migrate parts of the stack away? Can you tell us a bit about your kind of future technology vision here for Boulevard? Yeah, you know, I think that there's there's a handful of things that we've dipped our toes into with 
Elixir and, you know, we've mentioned GraphQL and, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest things that I think the Elixir and GraphQL ecosystem together offer really nice conveniences around is those uh, GraphQL subscriptions. And, you know, you've got your Phoenix channels and more of the real-time communication. And this, you know, goes back all the way to some of the early, you know, reasons why I felt like Elixir was a good fit for Boulevard is when you've got a super busy front desk and you've got multiple people scheduling appointments, you have people booking online, staff members are moving or canceling appointments from their phone. Everyone is interacting with that same data, the calendar at all times and the calendar for today, especially. And so making sure that everyone can see the most up-to-date, consistent view of today's calendar uh, because it represents how they're making money uh, is really important. And today we do use GraphQL subscriptions, which is a layer on top of uh, Phoenix channels to do that well. Um, and by you know having these conveniences that expose you know server pushed events down to the client when things change is really delightful. Um, and that's something that you know as we especially embrace more mobile, um, you know it, it's been well. And you know one of our client-facing applications. We, we allow our businesses to have a tablet that sits at the front desk. And during checkout, the front desk can click a button in their web dashboard that says prompt for gratuity. Uh, and when they press that button on the iPad, a GraphQL, we've got the iPad sitting there with a GraphQL subscription open and says, hey, let me know when, when the front desk wants me to show gratuity or pr present for gratuity collection from a customer. And um, they press that button in the web dashboard and it pops up on the iPad. And that has been so reliable and so easy um, to just set up a subscription and, and, and you know, walk away uh, that it's, it's been really, really nice. Uh, and so in definitely embracing more of that real-time nature that both Elixir and Phoenix and GraphQL are known for um, is something that's been nice. And you know, e even more so, now that we've been investing more in point-of-sale hardware, you know, Boulevard, we're actually rolling out our own chip readers to our customers over the course of the next couple months. And, you know, all of the binary parsing that comes with some of the, you know, the hardware and point of sale devices, that's been such an incredible experience in Elixir. Um, you know, being able to work with binary pattern matching and, you know, the nimble parsec parsing libraries that are out there, all of that makes working with binary data really, really delightful. So is, is there any plans for nerves on the horizon if you're getting into some embedded hardware stuff? Potentially, you know, there's a couple of use cases, especially with um, some of the archaic hotel PMS systems um, out there. And like when you think about some spas that are in hotels and all of the data must stay on premise and you know, oh, yeah. being able to offer some really, you know, uh, uh, new age customer experiences, but in archaic systems that have on premise restrictions. I think there's certainly some opportunities there. That's cool. Yeah. You can be an Elixir shop top to bottom with the hardware and the server very nice yeah um you know what i want to ask one more question which is what are your thoughts about phoenix live view you know you've just gone through this entire journey of building a company around graphql and react and all of this um you know if you were doing it over today would you start with live view um i I would not start with LiveView for our application, but I I do am I am extremely positive. I have extremely positive you know thoughts on how LiveView is going to change development for the whole. And you know when I look at our use case of having a huge cross section of React Native, you know React on the web, a huge emphasis on 
um, the design and component libraries and, you know, long lived, long living UIs that, you know, you can start booking an appointment and open up different modules within, within our web application. And I, 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 I do wonder about how, you know, live view will fit into, to some of that ecosystem, especially mm-hmm. around the, the, the design of some of those components and how you can maybe share some of it between mobile and, and web. But, um, in that view, you know, I, I, I'm really bullish on the path we've taken, but you know, had had I been building a slightly different application, absolutely, I think LiveView would be um, a tremendous choice. What kind of what kind of app do you think it's best suited for? You know, I think the majority of of content driven applications that have some degree of interactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not like it, I think that the more interactivity and the more layers of information that need to communicate with one another, um, you know, become challenging. Um, you know, if you need any type of offline support, you know, if your internet right. goes offline and you need to be able to queue things up and submit them back when you regain internet connection. And I, I think that there's, there's, there's always going to be, you know, opportunities that you need to invest in more client side logic. Um, but you know, for most scenarios, you don't need that. Yeah, nice fair. Cool. Well, Sean, it's been great having you on the show here today, and uh, it's it's really awesome to hear about uh, another Elixir success story. That I, I'm just going to go out on a whim, uh, a limb, and say that I think that Boulevard probably isn't as well known as it should be in the Elixir community right now. Um, you, you know, you've been doing a lot of great stuff. You you were an early adopter. There's, you know, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of like great stuff that could be open sourced or and things like that within the, the app. So um, it's it's just really great hearing about the, the the kind of journey you've been on to date and the fact that you've really invested in Elixir and the ecosystem as well. So, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. And we would love to see uh, on that open source front, you know, is there anything there that you're thinking about extracting out over the coming months or years or any any projects that come top of mind there absolutely there's there's a handful of of parts of our code base that i would love to give back to the community and you know it's in our best interest as well to make sure that the the community thrives and has everything it needs to be successful so you know i in fact on on that uh um, Postgres issue that I mentioned earlier, I had just commented on on GitHub that I'm more than happy to dedicate some of our engineering resources to you know helping fix and you know work on some of these scaling challenges as a, as a team. So, you awesome. know uh, whether it's us contributing to some of the existing open source projects or open sourcing some of our own, I'm all for it. Awesome, good to hear. Um, cool. Well, I think that about wraps up the show for today, folks. Um, you know, it's it's. We're, we're back. We're hoping we're going to be back for, for a while and we're, we're going to hopefully get back into a bit more of a regular rhythm of recording after our summer hiatus. Although I haven't really mentioned this to Desmond until this moment. So we'll see how this goes. We'll um, see. You will see. We'll but, see. It, it, you know, it's, it's great to be back and we're, we're excited about uh, talking about more of the Elixir ecosystem and community. We are still here. We're still hugely passionate and it's great to have guests on like Sean on the show. So... Yeah, so that's about all we've got time for today, folks. So I've been Chris. I'm Desmond. That's Sean. Sean. (laughs) And uh, 
I've forgotten how to do the outro entirely. You, you tell but... people to review us on uh, yeah, wherever they get right. the broadcast. So, uh, if you, if you, we would love it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get in this podcast today. Please hit that like button on wherever that is, or the five stars, or whatever it is that's on there. Tell your friends about Elixir Talk. Uh, if you have any questions for us, you can get in touch with us at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. And you can even open up a GitHub issue on our GitHub issues page, which is github.com forward slash Elixir Talk forward slash Elixir Talk. So that's all we have time for on the show today, folks. But keep, keep elixiring. elixiring. elixiring.